Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Camille DeMaio found inspiration for her first best-selling historical fiction in a Beatles song. And then she had the good fortune to meet the song's composer and tell him all about it. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Camille talks about how history found her rather than the other way around and about her latest book based around the Marilyn Monroe classic Some Like It Hot but with another ghost in the story, the ghost in the Hotel del Coronado. But before we talk to Camille, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Camille's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe if you want to, so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Camille. Hello there, Camille, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction? And if so, what was it that got you started? In grade school, I spent a lot of recesses in our school library and I read through a bunch of the Nancy Drews and the Trixie Beldons and I was just captivated by getting into these stories and really interested in who these authors were. And it was way before the internet and social media. So the authors were especially mysterious people. They were just these names on these books. And that really intrigued me. And I had the idea that I'd like to be one of them someday. Yeah, that sounds great. And I know you've talked a little bit about how you are naturally an introvert, but you've done a lot of very extroverted things. We'll get onto that. But being a real estate agent, for one, is not something you'd think an introvert would take kindly to. But you've managed, obviously, to straddle the personality spectrum. Definitely. I'd like to think I'm somebody who steps up to what I need to do. But uh, the introvert side of me definitely recharges from coming home and being quiet and uh reading especially. I'm a very avid reader. I think I'm up to 105 books for 2018. So that is really where I get my energy back and then I'm ready to go do anything I need to do. That's fantastic. You chose historical fiction as your genre. What attracted you to the historical aspect? Well, as I look back on a lot of my reading, especially in my young adult life, I was really interested in historical fiction without even realizing that it was a genre. It just seems to be what I look back and and find that I was reading. Um, Historical fiction really found me as a writer because the particular story idea I had for my debut book, The Memory of Us, Uh, had to take place in a historical period, and that's the story I wanted to tell. So it more sprang from that, and then once I wrote that book, I found that I enjoyed the research process so much, especially the historical research, that every new book idea that came to me just happened to be historical in nature. So here I am. I'm working on book five that way right now. Yes, and all of the books you've done so far focus in that 40s and 50s era, and some of them coming through into the contemporary world because they've got dual timelines. But 
certainly they're anchored in the 40s and 50s. Is there something about that particular era that interests you? Yes, I like that that era is not so very different from where we are now. I mean, they had automobiles, they had telephones, you know, not as regularly as we do now, but it's not it's not a completely foreign concept. Um, I live in, a, in an area in Virginia that is goes back to the 1600s, and people always ask if I'm interested in writing about that era, but it's so vastly different. So I feel like the 1940s and 50s is still something that's very relatable while being just different enough to be interesting. Yes, sure. Now, that first book that you referred to, The Memory of Us, it, it enjoyed a lot of success. It was chosen as a summer book pick by a lot of magazines, including Red Book. And in one review I saw, or one reviewer ref, um, compared it to Colleen McCullough's The Thornbirds, a, a book from a number of years ago now, but which enjoyed spectacular success in its own time. That must have been a great beginning. And I know there's a good story attached to how you actually got going on the memory of us. Could you tell us about what, what inspired it? Sure. Uh, I, I knew I was really in the mood to to write. I was just ready and at a point in my life where I was ready to write, but I didn't have a story idea yet. Um, I have four children and I was driving around in my minivan listening to my iPod on shuffle. And one of the songs that came through was the song Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. And it was always one of my favorite songs. My dad and I are big Beatles buddies. And the song struck me, though, in a really different way this particular time. And I thought of these characters of Father McKenzie and Eleanor Rigby. And all we know about them in the song is that they're these lonely old people, but we don't actually know their story. And so this concept hit me to say, who were these characters? What if they had a history? And what if they had a history together? And that just, it wouldn't leave my mind. It, and so I looked at when that song was released, which was the mid-1960s, and I counted back to how, uh, you know, what era they might have been young adults in and might have had a history, and that put me at the end of uh, the 1930s into the 1940s, and that's how historical fiction found me, is that the idea for the story really had to be set during that time period. And so that's the story I wrote, is who was Father McKenzie and who was Eleanor Rigby? And flash forward to several years later when I actually had a publishing contract, uh, they ended up wanting me to change the names. And so now if you read it, you'll just understand from my words that it's inspired by those characters, but they do have different names. And yet there are a lot of things in there that I researched about, about what they would have been. It's set in Liverpool and London and places that the young Beatles would have uh, been involved in as well and touched by. So that was the initial spark for it. And the path that took me on. <laughs> That's fantastic. And just jumping forward for a moment, you mention in your author biography that one of the thrills of your life has been the opportunity to, to actually meet Paul McCartney. How did that come about? Uh, it was such a neat surprise. I lived in San Antonio, Texas at the time, and they had a brand new music venue and their their inaugural event was going to be, and it was a fairly small venue, 1,700 people. Their inaugural event was to bring Paul McCartney out. So he came in between other tour dates. I mean, places where he's playing 50,000 seat arenas. And he came to this small venue 
in San Antonio, Texas. And I found out about it. And some somebody in my family who knew that I was a big fan uh, bought tickets for myself and for my parents who were also big fans. And so I brought this sign. My It was still a manuscript at this point. It was not, I didn't have an agent or a, a book deal yet or anything, but I brought a sign to this concert and he played the song Eleanor Rigby, which was really special to me because I found out later that that had never been in his set list before. So it just felt meant to be. And I held up the sign that said, I wrote a book about Eleanor Rigby and he saw the sign um, after the song and he called me to the stage and let me give him a copy of this manuscript which was already amazing enough, but then he actually started reading it to the audience. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was just, I've kind of, if it weren't on video from uh, other people sending me videos, I think I almost wouldn't believe it even happened. It was a pretty neat moment in my life. Paul McCartney reading my book in public. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, I saw him in Auckland and he is remarkably personable on stage, isn't he? He's very natural. He is. He is. He was so kind. And I, it was just a wonderful event. And I've heard that from so many other people who've either seen him or had any encounter that he's just a very kind man. And I certainly got that impression. Yes. Did you actually go to Liverpool when you were doing your research for the memory of us? At that time, no. My first trip to Liverpool and London was actually two weeks before the book was released. So all of the research that I did was internet-based research and Google Maps and walking the streets. And I was a little bit terrified to go on that trip because I thought, what if I got something horrifically wrong? And this comes out in two weeks and it's way too late to change anything. Uh, But to my amazing relief, uh, it felt so familiar to me when I got to Liverpool, especially here, I'd been pouring over this, you know, documents of this city for four or five years it felt like I had been there before. I had walked those Google Maps streets so many times that it was completely familiar and I didn't find anything that would have needed to be changed, which was great. And uh, I really, I got to go visit some places that my characters would have been at and it was an absolutely surreal feeling. And it's a lovely town. I really, really like that town of Liverpool. That's a wonderful story. That really is. Um, your second book was really rather different. I, I was quite surprised actually because you've got a 90-year-old protagonist who's been in prison for 70 years, a very challenging central character to bring to life in, in fiction and quite a departure for you, I think. She's a newly married woman who is driven to murder her only sibling. Now, I feel sure that there must also be a story behind that plot line as well because it's not something you'd even probably dream up unless it really hit you between the eyes and said, I want you to write me. So so what? how did you come upon that story? Well, it's funny. Right after The Memory of Us came out, my agent said, so what do you have next? And it kind of took me by surprise because I had only ever been so focused on just writing a book someday yeah. that I hadn't given significant <laughs> thought to what comes next. And what other stories do I have in me? But as I realized that, there was another story that had been sitting in my head. And it was just through flipping channels one night watching TV. And we stumbled upon a documentary. And it was about science trying to disprove miracles. And on this show, some of them they could and some of them they couldn't. But as I was watching that, it kind of got my my mind spinning. And I had this uh, this thought in my head about a portrait that was crying. And 
suddenly the writer brain goes, well, why is it crying? Who's in the portrait? And I started answering all of my own questions and it began to unravel into this, uh, this story or ravel (laughs) rather. Uh, It became this, this story about this portrait in a small Texas border town that is supposedly crying and all of the people involved who have some contact with it and what it means to them. And it did grow into this, uh, this story about this 90 year old woman who had allegedly killed her younger sister, the sister being the one in the portrait crying and finding out what the truth of all of that is. Yes. So very different from the memory of us. <laughs> and I was so pleased and surprised when my publisher picked it up because there is kind of a desire in the publishing world to do some things that are fairly cookie cutter. And they gave me a lot of room to do something very different and creative. And I was really excited about that. Yes, they they, they tend to anticipate that readers who, who liked your first book will be looking for something similar for their second book, that, that they'll pick it up. Yes, that's right. So it was quite um, a brave move on your part. It, that one works on a dual timeline as well, doesn't it? I mean, it switches back and forth between her experience when she was a younger woman and and contemporary life when she gets out of jail. And I gather that your latest book also, The Beautiful Stranger, works on the dual timeline idea as well. Yes, I really like that. I I like that juxtaposition between something more contemporary and more historic, because I really believe that we have more in common than we don't. Yes. Uh, And I like to explore how some of the similar themes can affect somebody in one decade and in another decade, but their circumstances and the history surrounding them and the time period surrounding them might affect things differently, but they're still facing fundamental human challenges and human loves and human desires in the same way. So that fascinates me a lot. Yes. You moved to Hollywood and the filming of the very famous Marilyn Monroe movie, Some Like It Hot, for the setting for that that book, The Beautiful Stranger. That must have been tremendous fun to research, I would think. That one really was. I have to give uh, credit to my husband for the idea to set it there. Uh, We were in San Diego. We've been to San Diego many times, but we were there most recently a couple of years ago for the Romance Writers of America convention. And we went over to Coronado as we liked to, as we have enjoyed doing in the past. And but this is the first time everyone is a writer. And he said, you should really write a story about this hotel. And it just has it has so much history. And I knew about Some Like It Hot and Marilyn Monroe. uh, But as we researched, and I think it was my husband initially who found this story out, there was a woman who died on the steps in the late 1800s. And it was never fully revealed if she had committed suicide or had been murdered, but she had a pretty interesting story and she's said to be the ghost that haunts the hotel. So I had this story of this alleged ghost in the late 1800s and I had the story of Marilyn Monroe in 1958. And I thought, what on earth can I do to connect these stories around this iconic place? And so I created a fictional character who becomes a link between the two and and wrote the story out that way. But it was great fun to research. And it's the most upbeat of all of my books. It was just a lot of fun taking place on a movie set. And I I really just thoroughly had fun writing it. And I really hope readers will enjoy it. Yes. It, it, is, it, is it out already? I mean, I was a bit confused about that because... Some pages said it was out due next year, and yet there are already a lot of online reviews for it. 
That one comes out March 5th, and the early reviews that everyone is seeing um, are just early readers okay. who have, yeah. you know, the publisher has sent out some early copies for the purpose of drumming up excitement, but it does come out March 5th. So in the middle of those, my most current release that is out there is The Way of Beauty, uh, which came out this last May and is set in New York City. So I I guess I, I really like these diverse geographic locations, the memory of us being London and Liverpool, Before the Rain Falls is Texas, The Way of Beauty is New York, and uh, The Beautiful Strangers is California. Yes, and just sort of flicking a little to your personal biography, I gather you've moved around a lot to yourself in your life. So obviously a little bit of geographic spread is something you're very comfortable with. It is. I've lived in all sorts of parts of the country of, of the United States, and I've traveled to a majority of the states now and to four continents. I absolutely love travel and those experiences feed, you know, the idea of description and history for me. It's just a really natural love for a writer, I think. Yeah. And so I try to bring that into the stories. I'm just doing very beginning research right now for something I'd like to set in Rome. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, so I'm excited about that. Yeah. Um, just just harking back to the Hotel, Hotel del Coronado again, did you actually get to stay in it? And, and did you ever talk to anyone or find anyone who claimed to have seen the ghosts? I've not. I've been there many times. I have not stayed in it before. Usually I'm staying on the San Diego side and then I'll go into Coronado for the day. Uh, but that is definitely on my list now. I, I plan to go stay in it one of these <laughs> yes. nights too. And uh, actually people go and request the room that's supposedly haunted, although I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> um, I had... There's only one person I've talked to who seemed to have any connection, not so much with having seen it, but he had done a whole lot of research on the ghost. Uh, so I spoke to him a little bit, but the internet is really such an amazing resource for writers. I, I watched a lot of YouTube videos and read different accounts of people who had encountered this ghost. And uh, so I was able to pull from all of those. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Look, you've got a lot of wonderful reviews from your readers on the Goodreads site. Um, what do they tell you that they like most about your book? My readers really tend to love my research, and I love being historically accurate. So that's probably the comment I get more often than not, is that they feel like when they, when they read my stories, they feel like they can trust the history. And yet, my books are not history heavy, like you don't feel like you're reading a textbook. I really like to sweep them up into the characters and the story and the location, but I like to make sure that every detail I have that is of historical nature is as accurate as possible. And I can be pretty harsh with myself on doing that. For example, in The Way of Beauty, I had written this entire scene in New York City, early 1900s, and my characters are taking this carriage to a restaurant. And in the scene, I mentioned the different things they see as they're taking this carriage ride to this restaurant. And the restaurant has been there for the past hundred years. And as I went and fact-checked myself one more time for accuracy, I found out that this year, which was prior to the, the restaurant being there, the restaurant had actually been in a different part of town. I was one year off. And so I changed my entire chapter just so that the route they took would be to the most accurate location. Now, I don't think anybody reading this today would have any idea that my location was originally off if I had just kept it, but I cared about that accuracy. And so as my readers find those things out, they just feel like I go through the effort to try to make that, that real. Yeah, that's amazing because you're quite right. And I think a lot of historical mystery writers would think that 
fudging something by a year was no big deal sort of thing. But uh, that's amazing. Yeah. And sometimes you have to, for, and, and you know this too as a writer, in the memory of us, I have two of my characters going to see the Snow White in the movie theaters in London. And in fact, it had not come out in London. It had already been out in the US, but it had not come out in London for several more months. But my scene had to take place in this month. And there was a, you know some reasons why they had to go see Snow White. So I fudged that by a few months. Yeah, look, that, I'm, I'm really think that's totally justifiable. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have to do that and let the story win. Um, but I usually try to put something in my author notes if it's really going to have to be different. Or the one that I'm researching now, I'm finding so much conf- conflicting information yes. that I'm just having to choose yes. what yeah. sounds the most consistent. Yes. And do the best with that that I can. But I like to inform my readers through the author notes of what has been, uh, what I've had to do to tweak things to make the story work. Turning now a little to your wider career, away from the specific books, you've had a very full life apart from your writing. As we referred earlier, you have worked as a full-time real estate agent. You've also raising four children. You've also found time for some remarkable adventures. And I'm thinking of the references you've made to having met both Mother Teresa and Pope John Paul II. Now, not just one icon of our age, but two of them. How did you manage that? (laughs) Uh, My parents were so great about having us travel. That's where I got my travel bug. So um, I've been to Rome a good number of times. My first time was as a child. And uh, we were at a papal audience in Rome where he came by and um, I was, you know, little blonde girl with pigtails and I uh, had very tall man, a friend who was with us and he lifted me up and uh, I got a, I have this picture of Pope John Paul II putting his hand on me and giving me a blessing. So that one happened uh, when I was um, about five years old, but I do remember it and it was a very striking moment to me. And I reflect on that and looking back and realize what a special moment that was. And the Mother Teresa I met as a teenager and I lived in Denver at the time, Denver, Colorado, and she was out in Denver at an event. And we, my mom knew somebody who uh, was backstage. And so we got to be backstage and go meet her as well. And that was, that was really remarkable. She has a, had a stunning, stunning presence about her. You've had the joy of attaining bestseller status with a number of your books. You're published by Lake Union Publishing, which is an Amazon imprint. And that in itself is, you know, a a real um, coup because they only choose authors whose books they think are going to be selling well. How did you find them or did they find you? I uh, went the really traditional route of getting an agent. And I, as every author will tell you who's tried to get agents, you line up all your rejections after a while. And over the years, I made my manuscript better and better as I was at get rejections. And that's that's just what you do. And when I got it to the point where I said, I've really dug in, I think this is this is the one, this is the draft and it's ready to go. I actually got two offers of representation at that point. So you have to you have to go through all that and be willing to understand where your manuscript needs work and have the humility to dig into that. And when you do that and do the hard work, um, you know, eventually you can get an agent. So I got a wonderful agent 
And she's the one who shopped it. And we had a couple of uh, several interests from several publishers at that point. And she steered me towards Amazon because she really felt like they were doing remarkable things over there and that I would be in great hands. And I trusted her judgment. So it was it was great. They shot the memory of us right up to to bestseller status, which was really exciting the first time out of the shoot. Yeah, that's that's terrific. And are you happy there now? I'm very I'm very happy there. Um, I every every place has its pros and its cons, and I hear that from a lot of other places. But they've been really good to me. I absolutely love my editor. He is always advocating for me. They're always being creative as to how they can market it and find new audiences. So I've been really really grateful for how they do it. Um, they have, I, they have less of a presence in, uh, bookstores and some of the other traditional outlets. And so I think that that's something, those are relationships they want to continue to build, but they're Amazon. They're already pretty giant to begin with. And so they do some great things and I've been able to be the recipient of that. That's fantastic. So it's probably quite a good point to ask you then, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that to which you'd credit your success? I'd like to think it is my relationship with my readers. I have gotten compliments from readers all the time for being somebody who communicates a lot. If people send me a direct message, I will respond to them. Um, I, I'm most active on Instagram. So if your uh, listeners want to follow me on Instagram, I love to talk about what I'm reading, what I'm doing. I'm very active over there and I will answer all messages that come through. And I'm on Facebook, um, and so I'm ex- I think I'm really accessible. And I think that that has been uh, one of the secrets to my career is if people feel like they know you and they like you, they're excited to promote you and talk about you. Sure. The, the podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading. So turning to Camille as a reader, and, and we know that you are a passionate reader. I see you reviewing books on BookBub very, very regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, the series is called Joy, Joys of Binge Reading because we're talking about people who like to read either all of the books by one author or check into series and read the whole series. Who are your favorites and who would you recommend for others? My favorite living author is Kate Morton. She writes uh, historical fiction and it's just exquisite writing. She just came out with her sixth book, which I have not read yet because I think I'm going to save it for the holidays when I can just really sit and savor it. Her books are one where I just want to shut everything down and live in that book for 24 or 48 (laughs) hours. So Kate Morton, um, I think I've read almost every, every Poirot book that Agatha Christie has written. So I've binged that. I've been on a Colleen Hoover binge this year. In fact, I stayed up until 4.30 this past morning finishing the second in one of her series because I finished the first last night and immediately had to go download it. So I think I'm through with almost everything Colleen Hoover has written, and I wish she could write as fast as I can read. (laughs) So... And she's kind of a YA, YA romance one. Kate Morton is historical fiction, Agatha Christie mystery. So I I tend to like a lot of different genres. And if the writing is compelling, I will go read everything they do. Yes, yes. Oh, that's great. So that's Hoover, H-O-O-V-R, is it? Yes. Okay, I haven't come across her. I must have a look for her. Circling from the beginning to the end, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change or do you think it's all fallen into place just as it was meant to be? 
I'm a, I'm a big believer that things happen when they're meant to happen. And I do believe that the more experiences you collect, the more experiences you have to draw from in your writing. And so I don't have any regrets. I certainly, I wish I had started it sooner. My first book published when I was 40. And so I wish I'd maybe started a decade earlier, but I don't really look back and think about that a lot because I do, I do very much have faith that you land where you're supposed to. And I don't, try to overthink that or look back. Sure. And so what is next for Camille the writer? You've mentioned a book set in Rome. Are you able to give us any more hints on that? Or is there anything else that you are working on in, in the way of new projects that you have you talk about? My current work in project in process right now, I'm about 55,000 words into it. So it's definitely the most, the one I was working on just before we talked to. Um, it, it would be my first story uh, inspired by a real life person. And it was a woman who owned a business in the early 1900s. And a real life woman, very little is known about her. I can't even find books about her, but I happened to discover her story. And so I'm digging into that. And to own a business in the early 1900s as a woman and to go through prohibition and the Great Depression and a lot of different difficult times and come out of that and succeed is very inspirational to me. And there was even a murder that happened in her past and lots of really neat little details that said this needs to be a book. So um, I'm digging into that one. It's also dual time period, and I'm really enjoying that. Oh, that sounds fabulous. And you're sticking very much to your um, to the thread that you've established. Have you ever had any temptation to try your hand at another genre like romance? Or I would like to do a contemporary romance someday. I've had a few... Uh, Sophie Kinsella kind of ideas cross my head. And so I would like to explore that someday, but I have a good number of historical fiction ones in mind. And I think I love the research so much. Not that you don't have to research contemporary, but I think I love the historical research. And every time I'm ready to sit down and put some attention to a contemporary, something historical sort of nags at me. So I'll never say never, but this I, I like this path right now, and I've found a lot of readers who enjoy it and a great community in historical fiction. So it's where I'm really happy right now. And it sounds like you've got plenty of other ideas backed up there waiting to be attended to. There are. <laughs> I can't. I, I still have four kids, and um, I help my husband in, in his real estate business, and so I uh, can't write as many books as fast as I would like to, but that's that's life. We don't often get to put everything aside to, to give it our full time. And that's as it should be. I love having involvement in all of those other aspects of life. Yes, yes. How many hours a day would you write for? Uh, when I'm very consistent about it, I'd say two to three. Uh-huh. And uh, I just participated in uh, the NaNoWriMo in November where the goal was 50,000 words. I came in a little bit short of that because here in the U.S., we have Thanksgiving, and it's the kickoff of some holidays, and my college daughter was home, so I prioritized family over that. But I think I got to about 40,000 words, which was big progress in the manuscript. Yeah. So I feel like I, I'm on a path to get it to my editor in mid-January as planned. That's fantastic. So we are coming to the end of our time together, Camille, but you have mentioned that readers can find you online on Instagram. Perhaps just recap on that. You very much welcome contact with your readers, don't you? Yes, I love communicating with readers. So uh, get in touch. I love to find out what they're reading too. I get my best uh, reading ideas from them. So I'm very collaborative in that and I love to keep in touch. So I'm most active on Instagram. I just love that it's a really positive place. And I love all the pictures 
So that's a lot of fun. They can find me on Facebook, uh, Goodreads, BookBub, follow me on Amazon. I think I'm in most of the big places, but I'm most active on Instagram and Facebook. Look, that's really fabulous. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. And I'm sure that we'll all be watching your progress with interest. Thank you so much. I love talking with you. Have a great rest of the day. Okay, you too, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.